Hello, everyone. Uh, we have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Miriam Grossman, who is a board certified child and adolescent psychiatrist. Uh, she is a medical doctor who recently appeared in the Daily Wire's documentary, What is a Woman? And is the author of several books, including Unprotected, You're Teaching My Child What? and Lost in Translation. Miriam, it's amazing to have you on the platform. How are you? Doing great, Sunil. Thanks for having me. Well, it, it, it's such a pleasure to have you on. You know, so many of our members commented in particular on your performance um, in What is a Woman? You know, how, how, how strong you were, factual, and you gave such an articulate um, responses to Matt Walsh's questions. How did that come about? How, how did you, uh, that, how did that role happen? Did Matt reach out to you directly? Yeah, um, Matt reached out to me and I was so glad that he did. Um, I've been I've been in this uh, field, this gender ideology, sex education uh, field, researching it, writing about it, talking about it, being very alarmed about it for years. And in fact, I kind of discovered what kids were being taught about gender uh, about 15 years ago. Wow. I was yeah, I was I was looking into um, sex sexuality education because at the time I was working as a psychiatrist for students at uh, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, which is a huge university in California, 38,000 students, and a lot of them were finding their way into the into my office into the office of other therapists there because they they had um, one emotional problem or the other and in the midst of getting to know them and asking them a lot of questions i discovered that a a large number of them had sexually transmitted infections they had um genital herpes or genital warts. A lot of them had had one or multiple abortions. Many of them were going in um, frequently to get HIV testing. And so I started to wonder what what's this about? Because I mean, this, this particular university uh, had the highest, you know, the, the kind of the creme de la creme of students. Um, these were the most uh, highly achieving, ambitious, uh, disciplined young people that you could imagine. It's very, very hard to get into this university. And here they were, so many of them, you know, their behaviors, their sexual behaviors were, were I would say, not, not, not so responsible and not making good choices in terms of their health, their physical and their emotional health. And so I was just curious and I and I started doing this research online and and elsewhere, doing a lot of reading, reading, you know, reading about the history of sex education, modern sex education. And I discovered that it's not about sex education is is, is not about health sex education is about freedom it's about sexual freedom and it's about really promoting uh any sort of consensual sexual behavior uh at any age 
And of course, this goes against everything we know in medicine, which says that the earlier one becomes sexually active, the more likely it is to contract a sexually infected, uh, sexual, a sexually transmitted infection, the more likely it is to have an unwanted pregnancy, the more likely it is to have an abortion. And these are not good things for young people to be going through this. Now, in the midst of doing that research, I came across the most incredible thing. I discovered that kids were being told that there's more than one sex, that there's something called gender, which is completely separate from sex, and that uh, one could feel uh, either male, female, neither, both, or any number of options, any number of options, and that these were all valid identities, but most importantly, that they were, that they were more important, that they trumped the physical identity, they trumped your, uh, your, what your body, you know, the, what your body uh, is, what your body is either male or female. And let me just, you know, let's get it straight from the get-go um, that sex is not assigned at birth. Sex is established at conception when the egg meets the sperm, nine months, usually around nine months before birth. Um, that is something that is permanent. That is something that uh, affects every system in the body, the heart, the brain, the lungs, the immune system, obviously the reproductive system. Um, every system in the body is affected by whether, uh, whether there is the presence of two X chromosomes or an X and a Y chromosome. So this is, you know, very contrary. The science is very contrary to what kids are being taught and what kids have been taught for a long time. And as I explain in my book, uh, my, my most recent book is Lost in Transnation, two separate words, Transnation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. And I explain the origins of this thinking, the origins of the idea that we are who we think we are or who we feel we are and not our bodies. We're not, in other words, it's a belief system that is built on disembodiment, disembodiment being a normal state of affairs. Now, this is all extremely alarming. We, we know that, that, that we want kids to have a strong sense of who they are. When someone does not have a strong identity, whether it's uh, ethnic identity or racial identity or any, any numbers of ways that you can identify yourself, it's a handicap. We, we want people in mental health, we want to promote a strong identity. We know, for example, kids who are adopted, 
um, and who might appear very, you know, a different ethnicity or racial group than their parents. Um, you know, they are at increased risk for, for having uh, identity issues and other mental health issues. So bottom line, people need to know who they are in order to flourish. I mean, there's enough things in life, right, that come our way that cause difficulties. Yeah. There's enough traumas and losses and anxiety and depression and ADHD and all those things that happen to us that at least we would like to encourage a strong identity. So when sex educators and teachers and doctors and guidance counselors and politicians are all, um, I would say, regurgitating this message of you, your sex is assigned at birth. What that does is it gives the child the impression that being a boy or girl is just a random and often incorrect, a decision, an assignment, a non-scientific uh, label that's that's just placed on you uh, when you're born. Now, you know this is this is just utter nonsense, as you would say, rubbish. Yeah. Well, when did you? When did this? Sorry, was this fifteen years ago? You you were seeing this messaging because a lot of our listeners will only have heard about the sort of trans debate in the UK maybe last three or four years if that so you're saying you saw this 15 years ago well absolutely I saw it 15 years ago I gave a lecture in the House of Lords 12 years ago uh, on on the dangers of sex education uh, and probably I include the gender issue included the gender issue there. So um, it it but but even before I became aware of it, it was still being promoted within sex education that was coming out through Planned Parenthood. I'm not sure it's IPPF, International Planned Parenthood Federation, which I'm sure that you have there in the UK and other organizations. You know, I probably. If I dug it up, I could probably still find the PowerPoint that I gave in the House of Lords. And, um, oh, that would be fun, wouldn't it? I could identify, I could identify the organizations um, in the UK that were, that were promoting this rubbish about gender. I can't off the top of my head remember the name of those organizations, but I could easily look it up. Um, so, so yes, this has been around a very long time. Um, unfortunately, you know, and I wrote about it in 2009 in my book, You're Teaching My Child What? It was the final chapter. And I said to parents, you know, this sex education stuff is really bad, but it gets worse. And the reason why I was saying that the sex education material is bad is because, for example, you know, kids were being encouraged to be sexually active. They were being told that only they can decide. 
that there's no age, you know, that's too young for sexual behavior, that no one should be telling them when they're ready. Only they can decide when they're ready. And if they have any questions about whether they're ready or not, well, they should ask their partner. So, right, you have two teenagers, you have like a, what, like a 14, 13 year old girl and her boyfriend is 17 and she's supposed to be sitting down with her 17 year old boyfriend and deciding if she should have sex or not, really? And then of course they're telling kids about, you know, just use condoms and use condoms and use condoms. Well, the truth is condoms, you know, it, with some infections, with some viruses and bacteria, they will make some difference, but with others, they will hardly make any difference, which is to say nothing of the point that most kids are having sex and not using condoms consistently at all. Anyway, and there were a lot of other things. I had information you know, about HIV and how it was being presented uh, as a threat um, to everybody, equally threat to everybody that is incorrect. It is most easily spread uh, through anal intercourse. Uh, kids were being led to believe that every sort of sexual experience might expose them to the same risk of HIV. People were terrified. I had kids coming in my office being terrified that they may have HIV. Um, and, and, and just all sorts of things like that. I, I talked about the teenage brain being immature. Um, I talked about oxytocin and how kids need to understand that intimate behavior, including kissing, but certainly sexual behavior releases a hormone, um, a primarily a female hormone, but men, boys and men also have this hormone oxytocin. And oxytocin is just amazing. It, you know, the science of oxytocin, the science of human attachment is so interesting. Um, basically, it travels to the brain and tells the brain, now you're with somebody that you can trust. So when you're involved in sexual behavior and orgasm with another person, um, your brain is, is, giving the, is given the message, um, this is someone you can trust, this is someone you can love. And, you know, that's kind of important for people to know, right? Yeah, yeah, de definitely. So it, it seems as if the the stuff that with the children in terms of what we're going to be talking about later in, in, in this podcast, it seems as if you almost stumbled upon it. It's not something that you, you, you necessarily were looking for or targeting. It just became clear from the work that you were doing. That Absolutely. Absolutely. I wasn't expecting it at all. I was looking for all the other, this all other other kind of topics that I just went through with you, and then I saw that there's this other message, a whole other world that that kids are being introduced to. The idea that there's a um, the the binary, the binary of, of 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 male and female, boy and girl, man and woman, was was false and oppressive. So it was it was placed into sort of you know, these political Marxist kind of terms, you know, of, of oppressive and, you know, these subjugated minorities and, you know, it, it, it just, I don't know, I, I couldn't believe it. it. It was, it was absolutely bizarre. And, um, you know, because the science says that as mammal, all mammals are sexually uh, dimorphic. 
all mammals are either male or female and male or female is defined as um it, it's based on 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 what your reproductive system is uh is is built around or is designed around producing uh either sperm or eggs so we are even if a person is is intersex um which is a rare rare condition but of course intersex people do exist and those are individuals who have some sort of chromosomal or endocrine uh condition and they are not uh how should we put it they, they may have a reproductive system that um you know when they were born was not clearly male or female but even those individuals and i explain this in my book because i want parents to know the biology um so that when before their kids come to them with this announcement mom i'm not your son i'm your daughter um i want a new name and i want you to use different pronouns and i want you to take me to a gender clinic i want parents to be prepared for that discussion and one of the ways that parents must be prepared is by knowing the biology you don't have to be a phd this book my book is not written for psychiatrists or psychologists or you know professionals of any type it is written for everyday mothers and mums mums and dads is that what you say there yeah mums and dads that's it yeah mums and dads okay um who will be able to understand the clear language that i put this in so just getting back to the biology um children are being taught or being indoctrinated i'm going to use the word indoctrinated because indoctrinated means when false ideas are presented over and over and over again with and they're presented as facts hmm. not as opinions and there's no opportunity to question it and i think you'll agree that that is what's happening now with with the schools definitely uh, and in in sex education and even the medical organizations which i also discuss in my book how the medical organizations have been hijacked and have been taken over by this ideology as well so when i get material from my professional organization the american academy of child and adolescent psychiatry it says to me that you know um that when i get a child in my office or a teenager who is uh identifying as a transgender person and they are requesting a new name and different pronouns that i should automatically go along with that and i should affirm that new identity they're not they're not saying to me well we there's an opinion that you should be going with this identity but there are other opinions that say we have to be more cautious that this is actually a major intervention in the child's life and we don't yet know what the long-term impact is of that intervention because many of these identities of of young people are transitory and so when we go along with the identity and we quote unquote affirm that identity 
and we use a new name, let's say a female name for a boy, female pronouns for a boy, and that happens at home, at school, all, you know, everyone he knows, his doctors, his dentists, everyone. We think a lot of us are, are urging caution and we're saying that, that, that instead of just giving the kid time to think, um, which is the way that it's presented to us, um, instead of just giving them time to think, it's going to lock in that identity. Mm. Okay, this, this is the danger, that it's going to lock in an identity that then places them on a path toward medical interventions that are disfiguring and can be very dangerous and sterilizing. Well, that's always the, the, you know, it's something, what you're saying is so many of our listeners will be able to relate to this. And we're seeing this so much in the UK um, in terms of the 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 forced indoctrinating of, of children and it being reaffirmed by, you know, big institutions here, I'd say even outside of even in medical professions, whether it's the media, whether it's just everyday life, it seems to be more and more reaffirmed. Um, I, I think what would be you know interesting your your book for for our listeners who who have not read it or haven't got it yet, uh, lost in tra- translation is available on Amazon. I I've been reading it and it is it is an amazing book. And what I was really fascinating is I think what would be quite good is to we go right from the start if you like the 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 beginning of this sort of uh journey and the the reference uh who I I don't think many people will know. Uh, about this person but they probably should and that is john money the the sort of if you like the the almost like the 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 founding the godfather yeah the founding founding father that that's it so let's start with with him and um you've explained so well in the book so again for for our listeners if you do want to get more information on this just go out and and purchase the book but for for our listeners let's talk about john money and let's go from that that journey um and then yeah, of course. I also will just mention for one second, um, Sunil, is that um, I'm very fortunate for uh, having uh, Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, uh, wrote the preface, the foreword to the book. He wrote a magnificent foreword to the book, yeah, and I'm yeah. very in debt to him. He also had me on his podcast, which uh, just incredible has been watched i i think now by over two million people amazing um and on that podcast i focused on the plight of the parents uh because i think i mean of course we're going to be talking so much about the kids but uh having talked to hundreds and hundreds of parents of these children who have distress about being boys and girls i feel it's really essential to talk about what the parents go through and one of the chapters in the book, Lost in Translation, is solely about the trauma to the parents. But yeah, to talk about John Money, it is important to talk about John Money um, because he came up with the idea that identity can be separate from biology so that you could have a body, a woman's, a girl's body, but your identity could be that of a boy. So two just completely separate entities. That was his idea. And how long ago is this for, for our listeners? What, what, what are we talking year-wise? 
he came up with that in 1957. Okay. We, we always knew, I mean, in psychiatry, we've been aware for a hundred years, I think, of extremely rare individuals who, for some reason, we don't know why, um, have this perception of themselves as being the opposite sex and of being in that they should be in a different body. And this used to be called transsexualism, now called transgenderism. But the point is that it was extraordinarily rare. So it was one in tens of thousands of people. And I go into that in the book as well. But so John Money was John Money was a psycho a psychologist originally from New Zealand, and he was interested in um, people who are intersex, hermaphrodites. Um, they were called at that time. He wrote his thesis. Um, he went to Harvard University, got his PhD there, wrote his thesis on how hermaphrodites or intersex babies, how the decision of, is made of whether to raise them as boys or girls. So you have to understand that this was at a time when, you know, this was decades ago. So the biotechnology revolution had not yet happened. We didn't have um, a good way to study the chromosomes, you know, to look at them under an electron microscope and, and map them all out. So John Money had a theory, which was that we are all born gender neutral. And he used this word gender to um, describe um, a person's perception of themselves apart from their biology, apart from their bodies. So he said people have a sex and that's their body and people have a gender and that's in their mind. He said that gender is a social construct. And what that means is that it's imposed on the baby, on the little child, from the society, from her parents, her siblings, her relatives, whether she gets a pink blanket or a blue blanket, whether she's given dolls or trucks. And that because of those messages and expectations that were put on the little baby girl, for example, she would then develop feminine qualities. Again, this is back in the 50s, so we had stereotypes, you know, so as a girl, she would want, she would be maternal, and she would, you know, be more gentle and passive and you know wouldn't be into sports and wouldn't be like, into likes building paint, things all of that sort of i'm guessing likes to color pink that kind of history but so it wasn't even going back to that point in 1950s 60s you know wasn't that there wasn't science to kind of dispel what he was saying um with, with the the fact that genders are signed by society that wasn't what were they not you know i'm not saying necessarily people like yourself as qualified as as you are but like you know people because you know i'm looking at this as somebody not in a medical uh background but this 
seems absurd even just hearing this were, were there not sort of eyebrows raised or people like yourself from you know psychiatrists yes in the 60s yes there there, there were there were eyebrows raised with his theory but as i explain in the book he was he succeeded at promoting his theory very well um for one one reason is because this experiment that he conducted which i'll explain in a minute um which is a a famous experiment with the Reamer twins, and there was an excellent BBC documentary about it. But you see, John Money was a very impressive guy, and he had a huge ego, and um, he was sophisticated and well-spoken. He was a professor. He went. He got his PhD at Harvard. Um, he was working in one of the most um, uh, you know, highly, uh, uh, most uh, famous medical centers in the world, Johns Hopkins, Hopkins University. And so people listened to him when he talked. Right, okay. Now, he was also, um, he was a, he was an immoral uh, human being. He was a bad player. He was a, he was a pedophile. He abused boys. He he was. Uh, he spoke in favor of incest. Uh, he was. He thought that kids should be exposed to pornography at a young age. So, you know, this was someone who, who wanted to break down uh, traditional values, if you like, Judeo-Christian values. Uh, and he succeeded. He really succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. So. What happened is that he had this theory that that um, gender and sex were two completely separate things, and that gender was imposed by outside by by uh, it was it was a social construct, and that by the age of three, he said, um, it was fixed, and whatever the child, whatever if they thought they were a boy or a girl by the age of three, depending on what messages they were they got, um, that's what they would be the rest of their lives. So he wanted to prove that. And I'll just throw in some another fascinating thing, which is, um, you know, he was so attached to this theory. It was so important to him that you do have to ask why. I mean, of all the theories that a psychologist could have, why was this theory that was so important to him? So as I explained, again, it's lost in translation, two words. Um, so as I explained, he wrote about his own struggle with being male, with being a man. So John Money uh, was raised on a farm. His father was a uh, raging alcoholic who would beat him and would beat his mother as well. And John grew up with this model of masculinity uh, who essentially was a monster, hmm. uh, a, a horrible person. John was a delicate boy. He was small, he was thin, he was thoughtful and uh, 
it, 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 I think it's reasonable to suspect that his father was perhaps not so happy having a son that didn't take after him and probably rejected little John Money. And John Money, on the other hand, did not want to grow up and be like of the monster that his father was. And he wrote later on as an adult, he wrote that he bore the vile mark of man's male sexuality. So what I'm interpreting that to mean, and I'm pretty sure that I'm right, is that he wasn't happy with his male body. And he was not happy with his genitals. So in today's terms, we would call that gender dysphoria. Now, when John Money came up with his theory that a person can be something different than what their body says they are, he was coming up with a solution to his own emotional issue. So just because he inhabited a male body and he had these, as he called them, vile male sexuality, genitals, it doesn't mean that he had to be how he thought of what a man is. You see, John Money, as a child, never learned, or as an adult probably as well, that there are many different kinds of men. And there are many men that are gentle and kind and don't beat up people. Is it possible and, that, that because of his father's influence, because of the beating, he, he naturally just, you know, became almost anti-masculinity. Do, do you think that played a part in his teachings and all of this stuff that that was such a bad example where he just decided masculinity is wrong, it's bad or whatever. And then is, is that- Yes. Yeah, that's but but there's there's even more. You see, he grew up on a farm where he would see animals being gelded, gelded meaning castrated. And yeah. he wrote, he wrote that as a child, he often thought that it would be best if it would that it would be best for women, the women in the world, if not only animals, but men were castrated. Right. Now, that's pretty remarkable because, you see, he ended up becoming the world's expert on uh, on these little babies that uh, decisions had to be made about how to raise them. And he was very aggressive when it came to boys. He was aggressive about castrating them about suggesting that these little boys be castrated. So what I'm saying here, I want your audience to understand that this whole entire idea upon which gender identity and, and, and this belief system that we're now uh, confronted with, you know, left and right 24 seven, and that is indoctrinated into our children, this all came from a, the mind of somebody you know, who struggled with his own gender and came up with a solution that has no basis in science or medicine whatsoever. Um, now, how did John Money get to be so successful? How did his 
gender theory gets up to be so successful. And that is the story of the Reamer twins, a young family, blue collar family in Canada, um, had uh, gave birth to twin boys in the 60s. Um, they went for circumcisions. There was something wrong with the equipment. The first boy who went for his circumcision had his penis burnt off. The second boy did not have a circumcision. The parents were desperate for what to do with this boy, with the little boy without a penis. Um, under under one, he, I think he was eight months old when it happened. They heard about John Money. They went down to see him. They were extremely impressed. This was a blue collar family. They were high they oh, I don't think they were high school graduates actually. Um, and the mother, Mrs. Reamer, said later on that when they met John Money, they considered him like God. Wow. John Money, as I said, he's at Johns Hopkins University. He's at a he established a clinic there. You know, they go in to see him. He has all his diplomas on the wall. He's He's the professor. He knows what he's talking about. When John Money talked, people listened. And they, he said to this family, to this mom and dad, all you have to do is raise him as a girl. We'll castrate him. We will, you'll, you're going to rename him, give him a girl's name, raise him as a girl, give him dolls. Um, everything that's feminine, give him. And you'll raise him as a girl. He's going to be fine, John Money said. Just make sure that you never tell him the truth. You never tell him that he was born a boy. And when he gets close to puberty, we will give him some estrogen so he'll develop breasts. And um, he... You know, he'll appear as a woman. He will not be able to obviously reproduce. But other than that, he will be a happily adjusted woman. So they did exactly what he told them to do. He was castrated. They took him home, gave him the name Brenda, um, and raised him as told everybody, we have a girl, Gave put him in pink dresses, gave them dolls and everything else. Well, they would go down to see uh, Dr. Money every year. They would take both the twins. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a long and difficult story to read. Everyone should read it. Um, I summarized the story in my book. The original story is in a book called As Nature Made Him, The Boy That Was Raised as a Girl by John Colapinto. I highly recommend it. Read it after you read my book. <laughs> um, but the, the point of the story is that Dr. Money reported his experiment with these twins to be a total success. And he wrote about it in the professional literature, in the psychological literature. He went out and wrote books about it for for the for the non you know for the lay public, and he 
uh, announced ca that categorically this was a success. This boy who was a normal, uh, you know, chromos his, his chromosomes were normal. Uh, everything else was normal. He was raised as a girl successfully. He was doing well. He was doing well at school. He was flourishing and so on and so forth. Well, this went on for, for a number of years uh, until, in fact, until the twins were, I think, about 14 when, uh, when, well, wait, uh, I'm going to. So were there no issues between when from when let's say eight months whatever to fourteen he, he was well oh yeah oh, oh there were a lot of issues but you see John Money did not acknowledge those issues he right. would say in his writing that Brenda Brenda was was masculine you know had some more sort of tomboy that's what he would say that she was kind of a tomboy. But, you know, that otherwise she was she was just fine. Now, the truth only came out decades later. So, see, this is what's important because you asked, how did all this take hold? It's because it took so long for the truth to come out. So John Money continued to report the experiment a success. But in the meantime, it was a disaster. And Brenda, so-called Brenda, was fighting tooth and nail from from a very early age, from the beginning, did not want to wear dresses, did not want to play with dogs, wanted to play with her twin brother's trucks and and you know blocks and wanted to go out and play in sports and was extremely rough, more rough than her twin twin brother was. Aggressive, rough, masculine, even wanted to pee standing up. Wow. Okay. Which is which is really interesting because 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 Brenda was raised from the age of I think eighteen months, you know, like he was still in diapers, I think, uh, but still wanted to pee standing up. Now that may have been because he saw his father. I mean, who who knows? We don't know. But he he was extremely masculine. Um, he walked like a boy, he talked like a boy, his gestures were boyish. He wanted to be a, uh, a, a car mechanic when he was a kid. He wanted to be a garbage collector. I mean, just the most, you know, male, stereotypical male things you can imagine. And he was not accepted by, socially at school. And he was not a happy child. And he did act out and he did he was very unhappy and the family was very unhappy and struggled and the parents kept on blaming themselves because john money had led them to believe that you know if you it's all in your hands if you do a good job raising this you know your son as your daughter then he's she's going to be just fine and they did everything they could now p.s when david in 19 well, okay when David was 14 years old um, and he was on estrogen, developing breasts, um, John Money at one of the yearly visits was trying to convince him to go have surgery that would construct a uh, structure that, that John Money was calling a vagina. Um, 
and and Brenda would hear nothing of it. I mean, he that was her. He didn't want it, and uh, uh, he he and John Money brought in a transgender uh, woman in order to talk to Brenda and try to convince Brenda to go ahead. Uh, with with the surgery and how, and how old is he at this stage? But when this is happening, how old is? Uh, I probably, I would say probably thirteen, thirteen, fourteen. Right. Maybe twelve. Okay. Around there, probably yeah, probably more like twelve. Okay, so in any case, um, uh, he refused to go back there. Um back to Johns Hopkins and he was he was in therapy uh up in um Vanc uh not Vancouver uh in yeah in Van British Columbia Winnipeg Winnipeg he they lived in Winnipeg and he was in therapy uh you know at a center to help children uh and he was suicidal at this point because he was starting to be, he was attracted to other girls. He was entering puberty and he was attracted to girls. So the psychiatrist that was taking care of the family, of him and his family, basically said, you have to tell him. You must, I, I know that John Money told you not to, but at this point, you have to tell him the truth. So one day, um, the parents took these twins separately and informed them of what had happened. And uh, David, which is the, the name that uh, Brenda then assumed the name David, but David later on said that he was, you know, he was asked, how did you feel at that moment when you found out? And he said he had just overwhelming relief that he was not crazy because he never felt like a girl. Um, and he immediately took the name David and he picked the name David because biblical David felt that he had been fighting a monster all his life. And he took the name David, went immediately to living as a, as a boy, um, stopped the estrogen, obviously, um, went on testosterone, had his breasts removed, um, surgically removed. And, uh, and the thing is, I mean, there's so many, you know, there's so many parts to this story that's so interesting, but I didn't want to take up all the time talking about it. I want your audience to understand that this experiment with the twins was John Money's proof of concept. This is what he used. He pointed at this study with the twins to show that his gender theory, in other words, his idea that gender, the way that we think of ourselves as male or female, uh, is completely separate from biology. This is the study that he used. This is the experiment that he kept, that was the proof of his idea. And it was a complete catastrophe. It was not, it was a proof that his idea was wrong. But because it took something like 30 years for the truth to come out, because David didn't realize until 1998 or 1999 that you see that the medical profession was was pointing at 
at his case being a success when they went and made decisions about other boys. And that he learned that in not only in 1999. And that's when he decided to stand up and to go public because he was worried about all the boys all over the globe, really, that were being castrated and, and um, you know, their genitals were being removed and they were being raised as girls based on John Money's depiction of his case being a resounding success. So I tell that story, that's the first chapter, because I want people to understand, parents especially, that this whole thing, the foundation of this whole gender belief system is, 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 is rotten, basically. That's the foundation for it. Because our biology is extremely powerful. And to deny our biology, which is what right now we have gender affirming care, which, which allows kids to make their own you know, self-diagnosis and the doctors and therapists or parents and everyone else is supposed to go along with that diagnosis and go along with a new identity that is completely separate from their biology that requires a denying of their biology. And what I am saying is that you cannot deny biology without paying a price. So that was kind of a long version of the John Money. Well, it's actually a short version because there's so much else that could be said. So PS, the end of the story is very tragic. Uh, the other twin, the boy that did not go through the trauma, well, went through plenty of trauma. Oh, I didn't say that John Money, every year when the boys were coming down there, was sexually abusing those boys every year. But anyway, the harm that was done to this family was very, was profound. Um, the, the twin, uh, uh, Bruce, wait a minute. I always, you know, I always get confused between Bruce and Brian. I don't know why. I have like a mental block. Which one was the one that was raised as Brenda? I think that it was Bruce. Anyway, Brian, the other twin, uh, was also terribly damaged by the experience with John Money. And uh, he overdosed on drugs. And then about Two years later, I think it was that um, David David committed suicide. He shot himself. He did, you know, he did have some good years. I mean, he ended up getting married. He married a woman who had her own kids. He adopted those kids. Um, he worked. Uh, he worked in a slaughterhouse, um, and he gave some interviews. You can find them online. But in the end, the trauma was too much and he killed himself. So that's the story of a professor, an arrogant professor, a, an emotionally disturbed man who goes out and wants to convince the world of his theory and basically uses 
fraudulent research to promote his theory. And the world for a few decades is under the impression that this is genuine research and that there's a consensus that this is the best way to deal with these unfortunate kids that are raised, you know, that are born with ambiguous genitalia. And what I do in the book is I speak about all the other dangerous false ideas that have come after John Money. So there's John Money's false idea. There's psychiatry's idea when they took the diagnosis of gender identity disorder and they uh, are uh, decided to call it gender dysphoria and no longer consider it a disorder. I talk about the harm of doing that. That decision was based on politics. That decision was also based on compassion. Okay, so, you know, the psychiatrists, the psychologists that made that decision uh, 10 years ago or so were acting, were motivated by compassion for those rare individuals, those transgender or what used to be called transsexual individuals who have a very, very hard time, very difficult lives. And so they wanted to remove the stigma from that diagnosis, calling it a disorder. The thing is though, that once it was no longer called a disorder, um, you know, I mean, there were other things that happened as well, but basically, you know, that's when around then the floodgates opened and it, we, we've, we've reached epidemic, if not pandemic proportions of, 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 of young people who are uh, without, without any prior discomfort with being a boy or a girl, suddenly announcing their, their new identities and the, um, the medical profession, the educational profession, the legal profession, uh, are all saying, put the child in the driver's seat. Let the child decide. Give them these uh, hormones and surgeries, which by the way, we do not have evidence of long-term benefit. Uh, then we have the dangerous ideas of uh, educators, educators who think they know better than parents, who think that they should be uh, keeping children's identities a secret from parents, uh, using new names and pronouns at school and not letting parents know. That's the dangerous idea and arrogant idea of, of educators. Then we have dangerous ideas of, of attorneys, lawyers, who have redefined, reinterpreted the words abuse and, and, and medical neglect to include parents who refuse their child's new identity and want and choose to continue using their birth name and their pronouns that fit their biology. That is now considered, at least in the US and the Canada, 
to be emotionally abusive. Kids are being removed from loving families because of this. And it, it really is, uh, I mean, there's there's no words really for, for how, how bad this is. I mean, you, what I really like about the book, and I know we've touched a bit on it today, is the reference to the parents, because it is, you know, such a traumatic experience for the parents. And you're not really equipped. I don't think anyone is really equipped in 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 dealing when a child comes to is a boy or a girl and says, I don't think anyone is remotely equipped for that conversation. And um, definitely the stuff you mentioned there about educators, teachers in this country, we we know that was a massive thing or them hiding pronouns, hiding the, the having gender conversations and having these secret kind of things. That's still a case for some schools here in the UK. So it is deeply concerning. My, my my question to you is when when David came out and and said in 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 the late nineties that you know that this was a failed experiment it was it was awful it was wrong, um I I know so there'd been ten fifteen years of everyone being told that it went well but why was why did it not stop then why why did the like why didn't society or you know why why didn't we say okay we actually got this wrong and we let's take some serious steps back. Why did that not happen with after post David? I'm asking the same question as you. And all I can say is that uh, it became so entrenched and it became so central to this, to this ideology uh, uh, that, uh, you know, there was no looking back. Uh, I think it's also important to say that since John Money's theory, um, the whole thing, as I explain in the book, uh, you know, it's no longer the belief system no longer talks about gender being imposed by society and being fixed at age three. The whole it's evolved. It, you know, it's been through many different uh, forms and shapes and 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 evolutions you know, to reach today when we're saying that it's something that's inborn and fluid. I mean, that's the opposite of what John Money said. John Money said it's not inborn and it's fixed by age three. And now we're supposed to believe that it is inborn and that it's fluid and it can change. You know, of course, it, it makes no sense. I mean, the contradictions, there's so many contradictions here, but you said something a moment ago that I want to touch on. You said, how can parents be prepared for such a conversation with their child? But you see, what I'm doing in my book is I am preparing patients. I'm patient, parents. I am preparing parents. And I'm saying that even if you think this could never happen in your family, you can't make that assumption. No family is immune to this. And you can be prepared. And there are things that you can do years ahead. For example, you can tell if you have little children, you can begin to explain to them, you know, you're a boy, you're a girl. That's been true. Did you know that that was true? The moment that you were created, many, many months before you were born, before any of us saw you, you were a boy or a girl because that happened at the very, very moment that you came into existence. You don't, you don't have to have this as part of a conversation about how babies are made. 
you can have that conversation way, way before. And you can tell your child, you know, that is something that you're always, you're a boy now, you always were a boy, and you're always going to be a boy. There are many different kinds of boys. There are boys that love sports, and there are boys that love dancing. There are girls that love um, engineering, and they're, they're not interested in wearing dresses, and they love soccer, um, and they don't, they don't care about makeup, but they're girls. And all of that is wonderful. And we're gonna, you know, we're gonna figure, we're gonna see what kind of boy and what kind of girl you're gonna be. So this has to start early on. And parents do need to be prepared for the possibility that, you know, their kid is gonna come home with these ideas about gender being fluid and, uh, you know, all, all the rest of it, that there's many, many genders. There aren't many, gen there's many kinds of personalities is what there are. And I want parents to know the biology. My book was not written for PhDs. My book was written for, I think that I said this earlier with you, right? That it was written for just every mom and dad. I have information there about schools, about the legal profession, which is still, I think, to a certain degree, probably will um, correspond to your situation in the UK. I have a very important part of the book is about getting control of your child's um, internet use and social media, uh, what they're doing on social media. Imperative, kids, uh, you cannot just give your kids access to the internet. Uh, a lot of this is coming from the internet, mm. okay? A lot of kids that I've seen in my office um, say that they first heard about this on the internet, on social media, on YouTube. So parents really have to be vigilant and really have to be on top of this. And perhaps most importantly, I'm saying to parents, trust your gut. Trust your gut. You know your child best not the expert with all the diplomas on the wall. And I've got all these diplomas on my wall and I'm still telling you to trust your gut. I, I think, you know, the the book is amazing for, for parents and, and future parents to almost give them that equipment, make them prepared and for those, if those difficult conversations happens and almost prevent them in the first place. Um, what happens next, like in terms of both this conversation, in terms of the 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 the, the trans issues that we're talking about, and also for you, because I understand obviously parents is one thing, preparing them, you know, making sure that they're equipped. But you know, how do we change the fact that that's the more accurate version of sex education is being taught? How are you, you know, if you like solving that? at the source, if you like, in terms of preventing them even having to go for what they're going through. How do you envisage that happening? And, you know, what, what do you think people could do to stop this, this, you know, just absurdity carrying on? Well, you know, I think I mentioned before we started the podcast that I spoke about the horrific sexuality education um, that exists in the UK, in the US, um, and that was 12 years ago that I spoke in the House of Lords. 
so, you know, I, I focus as a child psychiatrist, I'm focused on families and kids. I, I'm not a policy person. I don't know how things work in, you know, things get changed in, 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 in NGOs and in large organizations in the government. That I'm gonna leave that to other people. My expertise is advising parents and helping out the kids. And I explain in the book, and I tell the stories of a number of young people who I've helped, and they've actually moved moved away from, from the ideology. And they've, <clears throat> you know, over time and with therapy and with education, education's a big part of it. They become comfortable with their biology. And they realize over time that they bought into something that wasn't true. That they can be a man, uh, they can be, there's, there's any number of types of men out there that they can be. And they don't have to fit into a box. <clears throat> and that they can find somebody who loves them just the way they are. And they don't need to change their bodies in ways that they may later regret, in ways that will prevent them from having their own biological children. I mean, when you think about it, that is absolutely, I mean, that's, that's just so huge of a decision to make when you're so young. And I explain in the book why, you know, doctors, doctors who are doing these things and who are pretending that kids, you know, a kid of 10, 12 years old could make a decision about fertility? Are you kidding me? But what, why are doctors doing this? Because like, surely of all the people to know this is wrong, this doesn't make sense, would be them with their, their knowledge of professions. Why are they doing this? Why are they making allowing kids to make that decision when they must surely know that it's wrong more than anyone else? Okay, here here's uh, clearly, you know, I, that's one of the questions I'm asked more than almost any other question. And I will answer it this way. There are a lot of doctors who won't even touch this hot potato because they disagree with it. You know, it, 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 they're very angry about it, but they don't want to touch it. So they just say, I don't, you know, go to, go to a gender. I, I, don't, I don't deal with that in my practice. Go to somebody else. Then there are the ones that are actively, you know, in the gender affirming care camp. Now, I would say that some of them are blindly following whatever they are told. So the, 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 the mainstream organizations and organizations like WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender, Transgender Health, which I discuss in detail in my book, um, they are, have all come out and gone, you know, with the narrative. Uh, it's a political thing. These organizations have made political decisions, not medical decisions. Definitely. And when, and I explain in my book, 
I, that I interviewed doctors who have tried to stand up and uh, uh, voice their dissent and voice their disagreement with the policies of their organizations, they are silenced. They are censored. Their letters don't get published. Their articles don't get published. They're not allowed to speak. They're not given the microphone. This is what I want parents to know. Now, the medical organizations are misleading parents to think that there is a consensus and the educational organizations and the, and, and the government, they're all trying to convince us that there is a consensus. There is no consensus. And as you know, you know what happened at Tavistock. You know what happened with the CAST report. Okay, you know what happened in Sweden and Norway and Finland. They all said that there is no high quality evidence that shows that these interventions are helpful in the long term. Parents need to be aware that this is a scandal. It's a medical scandal of the highest order. And there, the body count is going to be dreadfully high. So what I'm trying to do is limit the body count. And I wrote this book, I put my heart and soul into it so that so that parents are warned about this and they can understand what it's about and they can provide uh, the, the proper information to their children and they will be able to feel confident if their child comes home with this announcement, they will feel confident and they will know how to deal with it. I have uh, in the final chapter, I have an example of a conversation between a parent and a child who has come and, you know, and said, I'm not your daughter, I'm your son. I want you to call me by this new name and pronouns and I want hormones. And I have a whole conversation there modeling what the parent, how the parent can deal with that. Well, I think what's, you know, I, I, what's frustrating in, in some ways from what it seems is that there isn't clearly a, a consensus amongst these groups, amongst the, the fellow peers. It's sad, I suppose, to see doctors, you know, that swear oath, and I'm sure this in this country, of course, the same in, in, in the US. And you, you would think they would be the ones who would have the capacity to speak up against this and speak out against this. And I know for certain in, in this country, there's the silence, they're censored, and it seems probably the same for the US, if, if not worse. Um, do you speak to like is there a pushback from that are are they setting up maybe groups to kind of combat this because like i said they they are medical people these are the people who have of course oh absolutely there's a fantastic group um called the society for evidence-based gender medicine segm.org fabulous group over a hundred uh scientists medical people who, who uh, they have a website and I strongly advise people to go to that website. Uh, what they do is that they present articles, they discuss the most recent science um, and what they're doing is very important. But, you know, they, you know, they're, they're called fringe and they're called this and that, you know, but yes, there certainly is a pushback. 
Um, I have a list of resources on my website. My website is miriamgrossmanmd.com. And people can also see there that I gave, uh, I testified uh, in Congress last month on this issue. And I explained in Congress, very sad that this has to happen, um, that a doctor has to come into Congress and explain that sex is established at birth. It's not. Uh, it's not a, I mean, sorry, I'm getting tired. Sex is established at conception. It is not assigned at birth. The fact that a doctor like myself has to go into Congress and testify to that fact, which anyone who took biology in, you know, in high school knows that. Uh, but that is the state of affairs that we are in. So, that's my website. I'm on Twitter at Miriam underscore Grossman. And, you know, the book is going to save kids and it's going to save families. And uh, that's not only what I'm saying, that's what a lot of people are saying. Definitely. I can 100% agree with that. Like, like I said, I, I'm, I'm on to the final chapter now and it is and it's an incredible book. And something that, you know, it's so important that people read. You know, we, we were talking a bit before on before we went uh, live in terms of some of the you know difficulties that you're facing with this book, and you know I, I can't imagine the since going on the the show what is a woman the kind of the not so nice if you like response from if you like the mob on social media or in life has it have they personally been attacking you like how how has that been in terms of in this journey. Um uh, the worst thing that's happened is that since the book came out uh, about five days ago, the book came out and it's being censored uh, at Barnes and, Barnes and Noble, which is the largest chain of bookstores in the United States, is censoring it. And, and when people ask for it, they're told that it's out of stock and that they don't know when it'll be available. Now, that is a lie. There's many copies that are available to Barnes & Noble. They're just choosing to not carry it. So it's not a surprise. Um, it's not a surprise, but I'll remind you, you know, I'm a medical doctor. Uh, I've written a book that's going to, that's going to prevent children from becoming lifelong patients. Because that's what happens when these kids are put onto the assembly line with starts with puberty. Well, starts with social transition, but then goes into puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries. They are made patients for life, and they will often have a whole laundry list of horrific medical conditions. Now, my book tells parents how to avoid that. Okay, and that's the book that's being banned. That's where we're at. I mean, I it's it's crazy. I I'm not like 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 yourself, not too surprised. I mean, it seems clear suppression and 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 censoring on this topic is just um uh, uh really not nice and unfair reality of it. You know what what do you sort of plan to do now in terms of will there you know are you thinking follow up book or you know you really want to 
um, pushed us further because it, like, like I said, you know, we, we, we've got a decent amount of listeners and I'm sure many will go on to get copies of the book, but raising that awareness to, to a broader scale, do, do you see yourself carrying on doing this sort of work and raising that awareness for? Oh, this is, this is, this is what I'm doing right now. Okay. This is everything that I'm doing. Almost. I mean, I still have a practice, but aside from my practice, this is everything that I'm doing. Uh, lots of interviews, international, different countries uh, are, are wanting to, uh, tr- you know, there's requests for translations already. Um, I'm being invited to speak in many different places. I hope to also be in London, and I would love to speak in London. Uh, oh, yeah, this is, this is everything to me right now. I've seen too much. I've seen too much. I mean, it is it is really really sad. Like you know, reading through the book, it, you know the 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 stories and stuff that you read, it is incredibly sad, and you do feel such a great deal of sympathy for parents who are in this awful position. Um, and generally, the society is not helping it whatsoever. You know, in terms of schools, uh, our medical professions, and more media. You know, everything just seems to be very uh, difficult for parents in 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 dealing with this situation. Um, I I, I want to kind of uh, as we're sort of wrapping things up now, uh, we could probably talk about this all. Uh, it's it's getting time. pretty. It's getting pretty. Lo- I'm 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 losing my voice almost. Um, you know, f- finally, you know, I, I you know, if we can end on maybe some more positively in in terms of what you think, you know, the what your book will do, like like you said, it's definitely going to help parents for sure, and 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 future parents. Um, you know, that there are some positive things that are happening for example in the UK like we, we, we have seen changes we, we did see some absurd laws being passed in Scotland for for a short while then getting reversed and we, we have seen some uh, changes happening in, in the UK and you know long may continue US is obviously in a slightly different position to us it'd be interesting to get uh, as we wrap up like what is the situation in the US when it comes to all these uh, conversations um, and how do you think it will change if if at all well it's it you know of course it's going to change of course there's going to be a correction uh i think that eventually uh well, I mean, we already have i think 19 or 20 states that have passed legislation uh uh you know uh, uh making it uh illegal uh, or, or let's put it this way, making these medical interventions uh, unavailable to minors. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not, as a doctor, I, I'm not happy about the government stepping in and telling doctors what to do. But in this case, things are so egregious and kids are being sterilized and girls, 12, 13-year-old girls are having their breasts removed. Uh, I really don't see any other way uh, uh, than the government having to step in. So, you know, I think that I think that people are beginning to wake up. I think that my book is going to play a major role in in that happening. Um, and, you know, it it will be uh, hopefully in not in not too many years from now. We will look back on this as a horrible medical scandal, and people will be asking, how, how did this happen? How did we get here? How did so many people, especially doctors and psychologists, uh, 
become convinced that this was a good thing. And I think that comparisons will be made with uh, prefrontal lobotomies, which uh, were, were very barbaric operations that were done on mentally ill people. There were about, in this country, 40,000 people uh, that received that procedure. The inventor of the procedure got a Nobel Prize. And now it is recognized as a, uh, a medical uh, catastrophe. So I think that's where we're going to end up. The only question is, you know, how many casualties there, there are going to be and what the body count is going to be. And so my book, Lost in Transnation, uh, uh, it is my hope and my dream that the body count be limited. Well, I think that's a, a, a brilliant way to wrap up uh, today's uh, episode. And yeah, you know, thank you so much for your time, Ariel. And, and also, you know, it's amazing the work that you're doing. You're a great inspiration for many of us, many of us listeners and people across the world. It's amazing what you're doing. And please, uh, long may it continue. Thank you so much.